Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Dominic Pandolfini from Pandolfini Architects, an 11-year-old Melbourne-based practice known for residential and commercial projects that are strong in form and unsparingly detailed. In this episode, Dominic and I discuss the importance of making careful choices about photography, branding, and the kind of projects you put out into the world during the early years of the practice when marketing resources are scarce. We looked at why Dom believes that short-term marketing activities designed to generate leads quickly are often a waste of time and counterproductive to attracting high-quality projects and clients, and what he chooses to focus on instead. We spoke about how the studio has achieved a distinctive look and feel as a brand, while also being careful to avoid pigeonholing the practice or alienating potential clients from engaging with the work. We discussed the new approach Dom is taking to photography to help the studio expand into high-end interior design, media, and potential clients. And finally, we looked at his point of view on the current state of the residential market in Melbourne and how poor market sentiment is creating risks that residential architects need to plan for. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dominic Pandolfini from Pandolfini Architects. Dom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Nice to be here. Ah, mate, it's great to have you here. Okay, so Pandolfini Architects, you guys started, what, 11, 12 years ago, something like that? Give us the story, man. How did how did you start the practice and what, what, did, what did it all look like in the beginning? Uh, well, at the start, it was very unglamorous, but um, I think I was about 27, 28 years old. I'd had a great five or six years working at a firm called Woodmarsh. They're a Melbourne-based firm, but do work across Australia. And I thought I was a pretty good architect. I thought I could start my own firm. Um, and so jumped off the deep end and went into that started with just myself and maybe a friend helping me one day a week in um, my friend's uh, studio in like their kitchen and from there yeah look we've just very slowly and organically grown but yeah it was very very humble beginnings like a lot of architects I'm sure. Matt so you're in your mate's kitchen what the hell were you working on like you jumped out there you were you're confident you're brave you're like I'm starting the practice we're doing this thing but did you did you have some projects that you had kind of picked up um you know, a little bit of moonlighting type of stuff or what, what were you doing? Or did you just come out and sit in your mate's kitchen and go, all right, <laughs> let's get this, let's get this thing going? No, absolutely. We had, I had some projects I was doing kind of after hours. Um, and I think I was doing quite a lot of concept designs, which is fine to do, you know, 
you know, at midnight at home. But um, yeah. I had one project in particular, which was for a friend, um, and it got very real very quickly and all of a sudden needed to be documented. And that wasn't something I could do after hours. So it was always something I wanted to do, but this project kind of tipped me over the edge and, you know, could convince my partner at the time to, um, that it was a good idea and that I was going to make some money at least for the first few months. So yeah, that was the kind of reason to branch out and do it. You know, we see the sorts of projects that your studio is doing today. What's the contrast like with that stuff you were doing earlier on? Was it kind of like alts and additions and sort of smaller, small types of projects like your mates and their, their sort of budgets being a bit smaller or what, what was, what was kind of the, the most of the work that you guys were doing? Or that you were doing? Yeah, so this first project we did was some townhouses, but very much the first few projects we did were those kind of alterations and additions type setups. We were kind of cautious, or I was kind of cautious, not to get typecasters doing those kind of things. So I guess the projects we promoted and still to this day were kind of larger projects, more ambitious stuff. But even with those first few projects, I, I came, like I said, from Woodmarsh, they did these very avant-garde, very expensive but very optimistic kind of projects. And that's what I wanted to do. And even so, even when we did these little townhouses, there was some amazing kind of moments in them, which um, was just what I got taught to do. But, you know, very ambitious. And, you know, we've had a lot of problems with budget over our time, like a lot of architects. But yeah, I guess even with those small projects, we really wanted to um, um, make them exciting for us and for our clients and help us get to where we wanted to go. Yeah. How did you find that early on, I guess, in contrast to where you guys are at today, you're doing this exciting avant-garde work with beautiful, beautiful moments and elements and stuff like that. How did you go getting clients to kind of buy into that in the early days? I mean, they weren't coming to you because they saw you guys on the cover of a magazine or something. They, they were coming to you because they knew you, they were friends, maybe you, you, know, you knew people in their network potentially. Was that, a, was that tricky? At the beginning, like, or did you just go for it and, you know, they got, they got excited? Look, it was, it, was, it, it was extraordinarily tricky because we would get these people, like you say, you know, coming to us probably because we were cheap more than anything. Yeah, um, cheap and wanting, easy. <laughs> cheap and easy. And then we would, every single proposal, we'd put together some, you know, full-on concept, well out of their budget, well out of their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, nine out of 10, they were just like, no way. Um, but <laughs> they were like, are we, you crazy? <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, financial pressure um, just to tone it down a little bit. But I think looking back on it now, I'm really happy that we kind of stuck to our guns. Um, and we've got in our, you know, in our archive system, thousands of proposals we did um, that just didn't <laughs> stick. But we were able to use those, you know, down the track and help um, inform our kind of design sense. So, I'm really glad we did stick to our guns and didn't just go down this middling road of stuff that we weren't that happy with, but our clients, you know, potentially might like. So yeah, I think it's put us in good stead now. It made for a very difficult start for the first kind of five, six years, but yeah, yeah. I think it's put us in good stead now. Man, because you're having to be disciplined on two fronts there, sending out proposals that you know that 90% of people are just going to ghost you because they're, yeah. <laughs> they're blown away by the number. And then on the other hand, you're finishing stuff and, and maybe it's, uh, you know, as you said, you don't want to get typecast into sort of smaller alts and ads types of projects and things like that. So you're also going, hey, we've got this cool project, but we, we don't really want to promote it. We don't want to become associated with us with a small project thing. I mean, that's the other thing that you have to resist that temptation to 
you know, fill that gap in the short term because you're you're keen and you want to kind of get more work and stuff like that. Is that is that kind of accurate? Like you're sort of uh, look yes and no. I think I probably haven't um, worded it properly. Like it's not necessarily about cost. We've promoted some really small jobs. We've some alterations in the tissues that we're really proud of because of yep. the design. So it's more about that kind of design direction rather than like the scale of the project. And we want people to come to us because of the aesthetic we've got and what we can um, do with them. So yeah, it's not just about price, but yes, yeah, I guess we've been careful about probably more less about what we've promoted to what projects we've taken on. We've you know compared to a lot of things we haven't control done that things many on times. that end. Yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. Gotcha. So it's very very much been um, quality over quantity. Today's episode of Office Talk is also sponsored by Mast Furniture. Mast Furniture is an established furniture design and manufacturing company based in Brisbane. They've been in operation for 10 plus years and built a national and international reputation for producing original furniture of the highest quality. With an in-depth knowledge of traditional woodworking techniques combined with utilising modern technology, mass production capabilities position them uniquely in Australia to produce high-quality, technically challenging furniture. Mast enjoy working with architects and interior designers on both residential and commercial projects, and their range of furniture is small yet considered. In March of this year, Mast released their new Beam collection. Designed by Adam Cornish, Beam focuses on the marriage of upholstery and timber and how to strike a balance between the two. So to learn more about Mast Furniture, visit their website, mastfurniture.com.au or check out their Instagram at mastfurniture. I think a lot of people that come on the podcast, are, they're sort of in that, you know, in that mindset, you know, the, the quality over quantity, they, they'll try to take on the jobs that they really want to take on where they think they're really aligned with the client and all of that sort of stuff. And there's real, really good potential in the project. Did that ever stop becoming a challenge? <laughs> I guess is my question. Is that something that you kind of helped you to get the brand to a point where you guys are known for your aesthetic and your kind of your brand awareness is out there? And then... Do you find like you've achieved some sort of consistency there where you're finding that the majority of those inquiries that you're getting are now that pitch that you would want to swing out there, they're, they're good potential projects? Or do you reckon that's a bit of like an, a sort of an urban myth and that, you know, even a studio that's defined a great sort of um, brand image for itself is well known, you're still going to always be in that position where, you know, you're not going to be pitching on every job that comes in the door or, or maybe even still 80% of those jobs that come in the door, you're going to say, okay, that's not what we're going for. Like, is that where you guys are still at today? Yeah, look, I think it gets easier to some degree because maybe there's a bit more confidence about where that next job's going to come from. You know, 10 years ago, you're like, shit, is this going to be the last house that we ever get offered and I'm going to turn it down? So I think now, even though it's still, you know, you're still kind of living month to month, there's a bit more confidence that that next project will come um, and there's about enough recognition of the kind of stuff we've done. But, you know, it's, it's tricky because even in like the financial kind of scenario that everyone's in today, you do feel very self-conscious about turning a project down because you don't know where the economy is going to go. So I think it yep. changes. I think you get a bit more confidence, but then you've probably got more liabilities in terms of your office. Um, you know, back in day one, I didn't have any rent and didn't have staff. So sure, I'll turn down a job and I just won't go out for dinner. But now it's you're looking after the livelihoods of other people and you've got commitments and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. I, I, to answer your question, I, I, I don't think it does necessarily get easier, but um, I think the parameters change, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's interesting. And also, you know, in, in the kind of economy recently as well, you know, projects going on hold is pretty common. And I think like 
sorts of studios that come on the podcast, they, they generally tend to not be working on a super high volume of project. They're, they're, they're more about like fewer projects and kind of concentrated maybe on yeah. five or six things a year. And that's like really kind of a core thing. But that exposes you to a lot of risk when two of those or three of those can go on hold, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just to, just quickly on kind of where you sort of see the market at at the moment. And we don't often talk about it on the podcast because it feels like, you know, by the time the episode comes out, it could all be changed and we could be like anything could happen. But um, but Melbourne, I feel like Melbourne and particularly like the higher end of the residential market has been been really, really quiet over the last year. Um, yeah. Are you, have you sort of, have you guys found like maybe a change in the in the types of clients that have been coming to the studio or the quantity or anything that you've noticed that's been a little bit different? Uh, look, I think just there's an overriding sense of caution. So I think mm. uh, my gut feel is there's still plenty of money out there. I think there's still money from COVID times, um, but people are cautious because the future is a little uncertain. I think that, you know people often ask us what we think and I think we're not um, typical of the market because we're just a small firm. So you know, like, like you said, two or three jobs makes a real difference. And we've been pretty fortunate over the last couple of years, but I know a lot of similar firms do really good work who have had like half their jobs go on hold. So yeah, we're, we're not a bellwether for the rest of the architects and building and everything, but yeah, just a lot of people are cautious. So in real estate, people are cautious, starting projects, people are cautious. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things are just slower to get going. Does that, do you think that that applies to like developers as well from your experience that they're, they're pretty cautious with their projects too? It's like both, both sort of sectors, residential and multi-res? Yeah. Look, I think on the whole, yes. Like there's still a lot of developers out there that are quite bullish and they've got these longer lead times. And so a lot of them are banking on in two years time when the building's up, things will be different. But yes, my experience is that yes, the both residential and developers clients are cautious. It's interesting because you think at like the high level of the of the industry, the premium end of the architecture sector, which is the premium end of the construction sector, you think that there would be a bit of insulation from some of these um, these economic things. You know, like something that clients will say to me often is because uh, I'll be paying attention to what interest rates are doing or whatever, but they'll be and I'll be asking them, do you feel like that's affecting your clients and their kind of confidence? And they'll say, well, our clients don't really have mortgages, so I don't think so, but. It seems like it does <laughs> still. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like just general, the general psychology, right, um, that's out Absolutely. there. People are just like, I don't want to get caught out in a tough situation. Yeah, I think it's always it's about sentiment and how people are feeling and, and, and that's coupled with construction costs as well. Everyone's talking about that going up. So, yeah, definitely people are cautious. Yeah, but you mentioned confidence and this sort of sense of you guys developing that kind of confidence over time. Is that just something that happened over time where you kind of went, uh, well, it's a combination of things I'm guessing, but after a certain amount of years, you know, you also just think, okay, you're saying that we're worried that that next job's not going to come in the door and you mentioned that you start to have confidence that that next job is going to come in the door. Is that for you guys just like a matter of, um, well, it's happened every year for the last 10 years. It's probably going to happen again this year kind of thing. Or is it <laughs> just that you're feeling like maybe the sources of where your jobs are coming from has become like more diverse, more diversified or stronger? Or what, what does that kind of, what's leading into that feeling for you guys that's developed over time of a little bit more certainty about where that next project's coming from? Yeah, look, I think it's as, you know, doing this for 11 years now, we feel like we do have some runs on the board. Yeah. So we've got confidence in our own ability. Like even now when we do a design, we're never quite sure exactly what it's going to turn out like, but having built some projects that we're really proud of and have been um, 
you know, recognized amongst the kind of architectural community and just in the general public, it does give you a sense of confidence. And then as we're getting a little bit bigger, more people are having trust in us to take on a little boutique development or something like that. Whereas eight years ago, they would have looked at us and said, no chance they can deliver that. So I think people that maybe would have liked to have worked with us, they would have been too nervous. But um, as we're getting a bit more recognition and as we, you know, know how to deliver projects like that, it does diversify the kind of jobs you're going to get. So I think, you know, at the start it was just very much private mums and dads doing a house with us and people that we knew, so there was a bit of connection there. Um, But now that, yeah, we've got a few, we've delivered some good projects and we've got, a, I think, an okay reputation, um, yeah, there's the, the range of people that are coming to us is a lot more diverse. Mm. Do you think that there's, there's this thing that comes up uh, in business and marketing where they talk about how people act or consume differently in a recession versus boom times or, or whatever and that there's this kind of conversation about whether having a brand or a more trusted brand or a more established brand, like people might actually like flock to that kind of gravitate towards that brand because of that feeling of kind of cautiousness. I, I sort of wonder, you know, listening to you talk about that, I wonder if that's something in architecture where being like well-known, having that strong reputation is going to become even more essential, even more important in a, in, in a time where people are feeling nervous. Because like previously during COVID, you, you could just be an architect and you had more people contacting you than you could possibly even, you know, speak to all of them. But I feel like in this environment, that that trust and that size and that capability is something that people would be really reassured by, right? Yeah, I think so. But like uh, people also get nervous about dealing with big, bigger firms, I think, mm. from my experience. Interesting. Like people who will, even us sometimes, people look at us and say, oh, they're going to be too expensive. And then, you know, you can meet with them and you can break it down and you can show them otherwise. But And, and then also just the personal experience. Like I think at the stage we're at, there's, um, you know, there's eight of us in the office. We only take on so many jobs. The kind of experience we can give a client, I think, is very personalised and I meet with all the clients and sit down with them every fortnight and I'm at every single meeting. Whereas I think maybe with more established firms, people think they're going to get a different experience. So I think it can work both ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess like from a client's perspective, putting yourself in the shoes of a residential client, it would make a really, really big difference whether you're dealing with a two-person studio or a 20-person studio, right, in terms of what you're going to expect walking in the door. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think it is that draws people towards like a seven-person studio or that being a slightly a sort of 10, 15-year-old established practice, that many people? In terms of what they're looking for in an experience, uh, they still want it to be personal, right? But do, why do you think that they would be attracted towards that slightly bigger studio? Is it just like, well, they're bigger, they're more established, and they're less likely to um, there's less a risk? Is that is that kind of kind of part of it? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a bit of comfort there that yeah, they are established, they can deliver, they've got the manpower, but at the same time, aren't a hundred firm kind of practice where you know you're going to be job one of a hundred. Yeah. So I think it is a pretty good sweet spot in that regards um, to delivering a really good service, but having the experience and um, the manpower to deliver it. Yeah. How long have you guys been at that sort of size for like around seven? Is that, is that a level that you're kind of consciously at and go, that feels like sort of the right size to be at for the type of work we're trying to do at the moment? Oh, look, yes and no. It's just, we, we've probably over the years, we've probably added like one person a year. Um, yeah. and, and that wasn't premeditated. It was also always just about the kind of projects we were getting and the kind of income we were having. And 
also like I've always felt a bit limited with my managerial abilities and you know if like if we had 20 people how could I keep a you know and you just slowly learn that and you learn to delegate and we've got really good senior people in the office now and they're better at some things than I'm better than me at some things so I think it's just a slow confidence and it's worked quite well for us rather than getting too big too early or being too nervous and staying so small that you can't deliver a project um, mm. So it's been quite organic, but it's I think it's worked quite well for us. But yeah, you know, definitely. as we get on take on bigger jobs, we know that we need to have more people mm. to be able to deliver them. So we're just kind of going through that process now. Yeah, I see sometimes studios grow based on projects that kind of come in the door where they'll go, okay, we picked up this project. Oh shit, we now need another project architect and two more kind of graduate architects to fill this spot, and then they'll start having conversations with me about, okay, cool, we're really, really busy as we're working on this big project that we've taken on, but we're now really nervous about the pipeline because there isn't another big project like this first one we got kind of coming in right behind it. And that's yeah. scary. And that's just, you know, time goes by. It's like, okay, now it's getting really scary. <laughs> and yeah. I, I guess like you've kind of probably had moments like that where you might have gone, okay, is this opportunity in front of us? Is it just a one-off or is this like, what to expect? Can we kind of grow into that? Because you've definitely grown carefully and kind of methodically, but sort of like roughly one person a year. How do you sort of see that situation just in terms of managing that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, I think from experience, it's that double thing to say, it's the flip side of that confidence that we know a job's probably going to come in the door. Mm. We also know that one's going to fall over. Like there's so many, our projects (laughs) go for three and a half years, like marriage breakups, planning changes. There's so many different scenarios where project will stop. So I think we've learned not to jump the gun and get some new big project in and go like, oh my God, we need three more people. And we probably do for those first few months. But I think we prefer to be, you know, a little bit stretched for a couple of months rather than get to the scenario where we have to let people go or we have Mm -hmm. to take on a job that we don't like. So that's where, yeah, it's the confidence in knowing job's going to come and then the experience to know the jobs are going to fall over as well. So just keeping it nice and steady has generally treated us pretty well. Yeah, like that that situation of a job falling over can... It probably only has to bite you in the butt once before you kind of go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where you get stuck taking on jobs you didn't want to or working with clients that you don't have a great feeling about or, yeah. you know. Because yeah. so. you've been growing like pretty carefully and you haven't had that those big staffing like overhangs where we've taken on that big project and suddenly ramped up and all that sort of stuff. Like I'm guessing that from a marketing standpoint, there hasn't been too many occasions where you felt like, all right, I'm really under pressure right now. I've really got to get some get some jobs in the door, get some inquiries happening to fill that gap. Or maybe you have, like there's nothing wrong with that. That happens all the time, right? All studios got, kind of have to tackle that challenge all the time. But I get the impression that maybe because it's a little bit more slow and steady, you haven't really felt that. What what what, what do you reckon? Well, no, we certainly felt that pressure. Oh, yeah? Okay, and cool. Let's think... talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, certainly felt that pressure. And it's funny, like, I don't think anything we've tried to do, and maybe we haven't been doing the right things, but any proactive things we've tried to do have ever really been effective. Oh, dude, you're preaching to the choir over here. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's even worse. I mean, you, you sort of go like, yeah, maybe we're not doing the right thing. I'm like a marketing consultant. So when I say I haven't found like anything short term that works, I feel even worse because it's like, I'm supposed to know the way to do it. But yeah, but Honestly, it's just through, I used to think there was lots of ways back in the early days when I didn't know any better, but through observation of trying everything and studios trying everything and talking to studios that have tried everything, things just don't seem to work like that. And I, and I now start to understand why, but 
like over time I'm starting to get a sense of why. But but man, please, I'm, I'm fired up by this point. Say yeah. more. <laughs> well, look, we, we, it's just it's just become very apparent to us that trying to drum up work, you might get inquiries on you, you might get coffees through the door, yeah, or coffees but you're not going to get the kind of projects you want. And it's only through producing quality work over a long period of time and, you know, having good client relationships, having good relationships with builders, all that kind of stuff, which takes forever. Like picking an architect is such a big commitment. It's something that goes on for, you're working with them for three and a half years through really stressful times and they're leaving you with a house or a building that's going to be there for 50 years, 100 years. Um, So it's a big call. So I think, you know, just trying to contact someone on a cold call, having a coffee, that's not going to get you the job. It's just that, um, unfortunately, I think it's just that slow and steady accumulation of runs on the boards and some good projects and good relationships, good reviews that is going to sway a potential client to come and speak with you. Couldn't have said it better myself. You're exactly right. But I think like there's a distinction to be made with something that you said very, very early on in the picture that you saw yourself as uh, avant-garde, expensive, exciting, design-driven, like design focused studio like that's a kind of a turn up term i'm trying to use just in recognition of the fact that there are architects that are not design focused avant-garde you know they're they're not like that there's like another category of architecture and i think like the stuff we're talking about might not necessarily apply to them because the reality is if you're like the local architect that just works with people that's not doing like particularly crazy work you're just doing sort of um, normal stuff or or whatever there are your market is a lot bigger like there's a lot more people that are just needing somebody to design some stuff for them and they're not like looking to win an architecture award with it from it, you know, that sort of thing. There's lots more people in that market. So I think like tactically short term, there's I I think there's more that you can do. But I just I, I want to say that was a, as a disclaimer because I think sometimes there's like a little bit of confusion between the kind of different categories that architecture practices sit within and the different kind of tiers. Yeah. And I think for like studios like yours that are in like that, you're very strategically focused on those very design-driven projects and like that's your strategy and that's what you do and like that market size is so small like the people that are in the market for that at any given time is just like minuscule right so exactly if you go out there and try and like chat to everybody they would probably love to help you or love to recommend you some to you to somebody but like architecture is such an infrequent purchase <laughs> you just who or it's such a rare thing that somebody engages like a high quality architect for an amazing key project so you just you're just sort of going out there to people that are not in the position anyway to even do anything yeah that's what i've generally picked up yeah and i think when i say there's nothing you can do that's that's wrong it's probably short-term stuff like we're so careful about the way we photograph our projects, the yeah. way they're presented, the way our drawings are presented. We're, you know, we're in the process of getting our website redone because we know that's really important. We're slowly improving our Instagram kind of voice yep. and how that's collated because yep. that's like a lot of our market, how they see us um, and how they experience us. So we're aware all those kind of touch points are super important. It's just more of those, yeah, short-term things like, God, we don't have a job, got to get out there and do something. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing marketing all the time and you're spending a lot of money on it. Like, but it's taking the form of building a brand and engaging people to make visuals and graphic design and all those sorts of improvements. And I'm guessing when you go through those periods where you're feeling that pressure, that's when instead of like trying to go out there and drum up some inquiries, you're more just like, oh, you know what? Like, let's actually focus some time and some resources into those more quality improvements in terms of the touch points and all that sort of stuff, which is... Yeah. let's spend more money. <laughs> honestly, that's what it is, right? Because to do it, to do it like in a high-end, tasteful way that is like 
aligned with what you guys are as as designers as architects you kind of it kind of demands a certain level of expensiveness in all of your visuals and branding and touch points doesn't it to be to be yeah. consistent with what you guys are you know with your buildings with your with the service you sell like it needs to be all really beautifully designed doesn't it that's the expensive part of yeah being, that's the catch 22 of, of that's setting the catch up a small firm. yeah yep yeah yeah no i love it Maybe we'd go back to the beginning to talk about when you didn't have that limited funds, nothing to promote was my was my notes that I put on my agenda. <laughs> <laughs> like getting to the point where, and this is a question, I just did a Q&A episode of the podcast and I, every time I've ever done something like that, there's always the same question, which is like, what do I do as a small startup practice before I get to that point where I've got those schmicko images as someone said yesterday which i thought was really funny before i got those like schmicko images to like promote my practice like what can i do before that and i'm starting to like get into the position where i start saying like like almost nothing just (laughs) just like planning for what you can do when you are in that like year two year three when you have that project like anticipating that saving for that like that's honestly becoming my advice and i feel kind of i wish i could kind of come up with more but i feel like do, do you feel what what did you guys do when you were in that position or going back in time to no yeah, time look, no money no no finished projects like geez how do you how do you go in that yeah it's so tricky look because i think you know we had a bunch of probably half-baked renders and they're always so hard to show you know potential mm. clients because they never look great half-baked in what sense you guys just well like on you know some plug you in know, one sketch up or something <laughs> but you know and then especially now these days you know renders are so good and so professional yeah. and people are used to seeing those but the ones that's we the do standard now isn't it that's the standard like and you almost we... need to be rocking mr p renders to uh just just even turn up yep. on on instagram now it's great i, I mean Absolutely. i love it from a cons- consumer of images standpoint but from a having to help my clients budget how much they need to spend on renders. It's becoming extravagant. Yeah, exactly. Look, I was really fortunate having worked um, at a firm like I did. People came to me because they knew I'd worked there and I was just very fortunate to have fallen to that when I was quite young and it wasn't something that I kind of masterminded at 23 years of age. You mean people Um, like clients or or are you talking about who are you talking about coming to you? Yeah, so clients. So clients, clients would come yeah, to me yeah, yeah. because I used to work for this firm that did X, Y, Z, and they probably yeah. thought they can get a cheap version of that. Um, oh, love it. Good strategy. So, so look, and having a really, I had a really good relationship with my old bosses and they passed on a lot of work and it was having those kind of relationships. And I know that doesn't help everyone, but just those people to vouch for you in the industry really helped us get our first few jobs because you're right, like you're young, you're inexperienced, you've got nothing to show. Someone's taking a huge leap of faith to work with you. So, yeah, I very much leveraged where we had worked and the projects I'd worked on, even if, you know, quietly I'd show them, you know, woodmarsh images of a project. That was very advantageous when we first started. Yeah, but it was happening sort of more behind the scenes, like meetings, like... Yeah, absolutely. one-to-one. It wasn't like broadcasting that out no. to the world. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it was just, you know, hustling and working really hard. And, you know, when you did get that client, just show them how hard you worked and how well you worked and you yep. do everything for them. And it's just that slowly, slowly approach. Were you putting out anything like on social media or did you have a website with images on it? Or oh, I think early days, probably not. I think we definitely started pre-Instagram. Yeah, yeah, true. And and I think the first few Pandolfini Architects posts on Instagram are like my dog and my friends and stuff. Um, Love it. <laughs> they've yeah. probably been erased so far now. Um, <laughs> but no, look, it was very much just word of mouth stuff. Um, we didn't have enough stuff to fill a website. 
Um, we didn't really have even money to do a splash page kind of thing. So we just really hustled for those first few jobs and we're really careful to get them photographed really well. Mm. We, you know, blew all our money from a project in um, getting it photographed and styled and then just, yeah, went from there. That's great. And and that would that would have probably been like a couple of years uh, maybe a year and a half, two years into the process at that point, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, because like, the first project we did, we I'd started like the council stage as well. I was still working with someone else. Um, so I think by the time I'd actually left my job, we weren't too far off having something on site. So there wasn't too much of a gap at the start. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. In, in So basically just like be patient and eventually get photos is really the simple, the simple kind of takeaway, right? And invest heavily in photography and styling. Yeah, look, I I think it's like very important. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think the advice I left when I left my old work, my boss's advice was don't get a coffee machine and uh, get a really good set of photographs. Like they just, it was like the number one thing, make sure you represent your work as best you possibly can because you can see how photographers can, they can make a project look completely different. Um, Oh no, they can, can't they? And like they say, a picture says a thousand words. If you can get it looking really good and really beautiful, it goes a long way. It does. And interesting talking about that and consistency as well, because you've been working with Rory Gardner for such a long time, just like looking through the stuff on your website. It's always interesting when, when architects that come on the podcast have used one photographer for a long time, um, they'll everyone uses a few different photographers and they'll, you know, they'll change it up every now and then. But in terms of trying to get a kind of consistent look for the brand, uh, that's something that I feel like has struck me about you guys that I look at your Instagram and your website and, and there's a really like, I don't know, a really good kind of color palette and, and they've got that Rory kind of look to them, but like it feels like that, that consistency of using the same photographer is something that's become a real strength for the brand and an expectation that people have when you guys bring out a new project that they kind of know that they're going to like what they see photographically. Do you, do you sort of sense that? I think consistency is great, but there's also probably the other side I want to talk about with it as well, which is, you know, you mentioned typecasting earlier or kind of getting maybe potentially pigeonholed into a certain look or feel. So um, can we just talk about that a little bit, like photography and how that sort of interacts with your brand as a whole, like from your point of view? Yeah, look, I think it's such an important subject. Um, We were really fortunate. I was really fortunate to meet Rory early days through some university friends. Um, And he was pretty young at that point. I think he's about the same age as I am. But you could already tell that he knew what was going on. He was like over in Europe half the time shooting stuff here. And he was like really hustling and he didn't have a huge client base. But you could just see already he'd had this language of his shots and how he presented projects. He had this real, really strong vision. Like it wasn't like he was swayed from one architect to the next. He had a real attention to detail. And then on top of that, he was a great guy. Like I like spending time with him. So we initially, he did our first project and then has done every subsequent one. And yeah, look, it's great. It looks, got a really nice consistency to our website and our Instagram page and all that kind of stuff. Um, And his work is really beautiful. It doesn't resonate with everyone though and it can be quite architectural and there's a whole world of clients out there and I guess we don't want to alienate anyone because there's a, we like doing all different types of stuff. So like a lot of people always say to us, oh, you've got such a strong aesthetic. I was like, well, we, we try and have, do all different types of stuff and work with different clients and give them what they want rather than what we've got these preconceived ideas. So, yeah, it is an interesting thing because Rory's shots are very, he's got a real style and as he's becoming very well known, a lot of people know that and then there's a lot of people kind of copying his or, or you know, being inspired by his 
stuff that he does. So it is becoming quite prevalent in the industry. So um, it'll be interesting how we decide to go from here. And But, yeah, he's a great guy and I love his work. So hopefully we'll keep working with him. Oh, no, it's really interesting. And it is funny how that that sort of um, that visionary kind of style that Rory uh, sort of brought to the brought to the table many years ago it is becoming kind of the look and the feel that everyone's trying to go for, isn't it? Like in the architecture yeah, space. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tricky for, it's tricky for you guys as one of kind of the early adopters of that style. And it's become such a kind of almost like a part of the DNA of the practice. Uh, and it's also tough for Rory. Cause I mean, well, I guess like it's one of those classic things where it's, if you're the first person to do something like that's cool, but it can actually sometimes be a good thing if it becomes the popular thing that everyone wants to do and you're the person that's known for it. So I'm sure Rory will be fine. But but for you guys, yeah, it does present this interesting challenge, doesn't it? It's like, what do we do? Do we sort of continue with that sort of look or do we, you know, do we mix it up? Do we do a bit of a split, maybe 50-50 experiment with some different kind of bit more color, a bit more softness or <laughs> like yeah. what do we do? Yeah, so a recent project we did with Glen Iris House, we worked with an interior designer, Lisa Buxton, and when we started talking about photographers, we were like, oh, well, we work with Rory, that's what we do. And she's like, hmm, she's like, do you think? Uh, she was coming from a different kind of standpoint. She's Her interiors are a lot typically more colourful than what we would do and a bit richer, yeah. which we loved, and, that, and the outcome of the house was fantastic working with her and having that input. Um, and she wanted to get that captured in the photographs as well, which is understandable. And so we worked with Sharon Cairns on that house as well um, to get it photographed and she basically shot all the interiors and a couple of exterior shots and then we got Rory to shoot it as well. So it was an expensive process doing it twice and long, but it was a, we were really proud of the project so it was worth investing in that. And it's almost like I just wanted Rory to shoot it. I wanted to spend the day with him and go through that process almost for ourselves um, and then we got that kind of other shoot which I'm really proud of as well. Um, and it gives you that kind of both. I think, you know, it can get marketed to different types of publications because, you know, your Vogue livings and stuff, they want that kind of rich texture. Yeah, um, Vogue want that. Absolutely. Where I think with a lot of Rory shots, you're probably limiting yourself a little to more kind of architectural publications and stuff. And I think yep. um, clients come from, definitely come from both worlds. So you don't want to alienate or restrict yourself to one. Yeah, no, that's so true. Different different media channels and stuff. I mean, even publications, I think Rory's stuff is even a little bit too hardcore for houses. I think it's kind of like local projects. Um, you know, it obviously kills it on on Instagram. I feel like Instagram is the place where his images do the best as a channel, um, better than almost anybody's. But uh, but you're right, like that style for Vogue and the and the entire interior as well. That's that's interesting because I mean, you know, you're you your practice is sort of positioned in this quite, you know, capital A architecture, like we're real architects, architects a little bit like, and I know that that's not what you want to go for. So it's great that you're kind of making these sort of really subtle adjustments, but there's that whole interiors world and that interior client base, isn't there where you can kind of start speaking to them. And if if you don't, if you don't make those subtle adjustments, you might never reach that audience um, of, of people that would potentially be great clients to work with for you guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you'd be really limiting yourself. So, yeah, look, we'll just see how it goes for the next few projects. Yeah. But um, it, it seems strange to even think about completing a project without getting Rory down there, spending oh, the day with Rory, him and yeah, hanging out yeah, with yeah. him. Yeah. So, yeah, ho hopefully yeah. we can uh, afford to get it shot twice. Did, or oh, Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you guys will be okay. Um, when you put the two of them together on that shoot was that something i'm guessing that you spoke about with each of them first just to sort of check that they were cool with 
doing that sort of split shot approach or, or was yeah. it like rock up on the day? Oh, hello. Hi, Rory. Hi, Sharon. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, it was probably like having um, divorced parents. No, we got them on separate days. <laughs> we separate, They weren't like there at the same time. So, yeah. um, but we explained it to Rory. We said, look, we're working with an interior designer. Yeah. Um, she wants this kind of shoot. I reckon he was probably relieved. He didn't have to shoot the bed sheets. Oh, and the, would have loved know, it. All that kind of stuff. Um, yep. And similarly, we, sh- we told Sharon, we, you know, we weren't trying to hide it. So, um, yeah, they're quite different shoots and they, yeah, they're for different markets and, they capture different things and each people, each person like captures, they see different things in the house. They see things yep. that we've never seen before. So it's great to um, get different perspectives on it. Yep. I love how like, there's probably going to be studios out there or architects going, oh God, like you just were getting me on board with spending, you know, whatever, 4,000, <laughs> 6,000 bucks on a photographer instead of 500 bucks for my mate Kevin to do it. And now you're telling me I need two of them. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, it's just, it's such worth the investment. It's like, yeah. it's the one thing that people know you from. It's yeah. your one calling card. You can spend all you want on marketing and websites, but if you don't have some good photographs there, you got nothing. Yeah, exactly. Photographers like Rory, they're great at capturing mood and atmosphere and feeling in their imagery. It's more, I think, more important in their photography than just is the building explained comprehensively, which, you know, I've had John Gollings on the podcast previously and, his 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 attitude and his point of view was that like the job of an architectural photographer is to like document and explain a building, which was a, yeah. was a, a mindset that's very very different from I think like that Rory Gardner school, which is more just like how can I give you a sense of what this space feels like, and it's very like gut feeling kind of style of imagery. Yeah, do you sort of feel like? that's what it kind of comes down to for you guys a little bit in terms of how you're trying to frame imagery around your, around your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a really good question. Uh, like our work, we tend to want to really create an emotional experience and we generally do that through form and simplicity. And I think Rory's photography really gets the essence of that. So you're not looking at every single little material and every detail. Mm. You've got this yep. very stripped back sense of form and light and and that quality of the space rather than looking at a million different things. And so I think that's probably, I mean, and as you said it, it probably resonated and why we kind of picked with him from the starting point because um, he was able to kind of extract that or showcase that part of our work. Yep. Yeah, you say it on your website actually, our projects are strong in form and unsparingly detailed. I like that. That's actually a really good positioning statement it's a good example actually to look at because it, it's a very simple one. Just is a couple of words, like a couple of key words, strong form, unsparingly detailed, and it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the studio, right? I'm sure as I say that, you guys are probably in the middle of changing it though, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> as always, but... this happens every time I compliment a studio on their on their <laughs> about page. They go, oh, come on, like we're already on our 10th draft of the, the new one, you know. But anyway. Yeah, no, look, but I think it, it fundamentally it does go back to what we try and do. We try and... Our, we try and make our projects quite simple um, but strong and that's the kind of buildings that really resonate with me, like, you know, like the Pantheon, um, the National Gallery in um, St Kilda Road in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Very simple, simple materiality but these strong forms that give you that emotional response, make you walk and go, wow, look at that. Um, yeah. So that's what we're trying to elicit um, with what we do. So, yeah, and like yeah. I said, his work really captures that. That's so true. Do you feel like at the end of the day, like that that simple focus for your studio, like on that striking form, that oh, that's such a good way to put it. You just go like, wow, you know, like that's so cool. 
is that like what your clients kind of, you know, you meet potential clients, you see the ones that you think like, oh, you know, they're, they're kind of a great client for us. Do you, is that sort of what you see resonating with them? That sense of like, if, if, if I was to walk in your door as a potential client and go, you know, I saw Glen Iris house and I saw that form and I was like, wow, you know, would you be like, oh, Dave's the perfect client. He gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I think so, but it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And there's a lot of, yeah. It, it's got to do a lot more than that. The kitchen's got to work. The materiality's got to work. It's got to be warm. Yeah. Um, it's got to be sustainable, all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, yeah, if we can um, get a client that, and then they look at our work and something obviously resonates, I hope that they come and yeah. speak with us. But yeah, that's, that's, that's our kind of ideal client. It brings up another one of those things that's a bit of a unsettled debate in the industry between some architects, which is this thing. And people mention it all the time. And I always talk about it on the podcast, but it's like, studios that will sort of say like, oh, we don't really have like a signature or a style or whatever, like that saying that pretty 95% of practices will say that. Um, yeah. But there are practices that do have, and I think you guys do in that, in what you've described is like, uh, it's like a brand code. It's like something we do. It's a, it's a reoccurring theme of our projects. Um, and to me, that feels like a really important thing to have, doesn't it? So that you can kind of go like, this is, this is what we you know, what we kind of focus on. I mean, would you, you wouldn't describe it as like a signature or something like that, but, but how would you kind of put it? What's like the way that you would look at it? I think it's almost like our design approach or our design principle. Yeah. We have a lot of different clients, a lot of different materials and that they want to work with a lot of different sites. So I don't think we want to just force our aesthetic onto someone else. And hopefully we haven't done that at all, but it's more about how we approach stuff. So, you know, we're generally looking at something and like, how can we strip that out and just make it a lot simpler? How can we reduce the amount of materials we've got to make this one material really, you know, stand out? How can we keep it simple so that the detailing is really beautiful? We're always asking those questions regardless of what the kind of material palette is or the kind of aesthetic is. So the, we did a project in um, uh, Sorrento on the morning Peninsula and it was so different to anything we'd ever done. It was all mm. white. It's all very beachy. Um, beachy. Yeah, which was so different to anything I'd done. But it was fantastic because we had our principles and then the client brought their kind of aesthetic and we walked away from that project with this whole new palette of materials and approaches to stuff and we've that's split into all our other work. So... Yeah, it's not a rigid approach or rigid set of values or anything, but it's definitely we, we um, interrogate and approach a design, I guess, the same kind of way. Yeah, there might be some things that sort of would would be this, yeah, the same sort of priorities in that project, Sorrento Houses, some of the others, but like there was a lot of other things that are completely flexible, completely change, right? Like yeah. those material palettes and things like that. Yeah. But um, I guess like, there is this feedback loop that starts to establish though where, you know, you put work out there, you mentioned earlier, like the client that we want is the one that comes to us because they've seen our work and that it really resonates with them, right? Like that's the that's the client that you don't have to force your approach onto. Like they're coming to you because they've seen your approach. Like they like it, <laughs> you know, like that's sort yeah. of what they're there for. So it does becomes this sort of self-fulfilling thing in a way, doesn't it? When your work is what's drawing in people. Yeah, totally. But you don't want it to get boring either. You know, you don't, yeah. you, you don't want to just get in the get in the groove of things and just repeat stuff you don't want to be rocking rocking up to site and seeing the same thing you've seen before you want to be no, excited every time not. you go to a building site so the best projects we've done are ones where the client has challenged us and um told us they didn't like stuff and <laughs> made us work really hard to kind of work their vision they were the hardest by far and there was moments where we probably hated it but the outcome has been the best 
Yeah. I had a note on my list Dom, about fee, uh, just fees and pricing. And uh, I can't remember why that's there, but maybe you can tell me. <laughs> what do I need? What do I maybe, need to talk? <laughs> maybe I was going to ask you, ask you for some advice. Look, I think when we chatted before talking about fees and stuff, I think going that first 10 years or the first few years of practice, it's so difficult because basically you're not charging as much as you should. Mm. Um, and that's because you don't have runs on the board and pe- the reason people are coming to you is because fundamentally because you're cheap. And I think I bemoaned that for <laughs> years and years and years and it made things really stressful. Like not having money is stressful and it's hard to do your job and all yeah. that kind of stuff. However, in the last year or so, I look back at all the projects that we got because we were cheap um, and that they put us into the position that we are now mm. and maybe it wasn't as terrible as I thought. Like I, and I'm not advocating for people to do things cheaply and, um, but it's just funny. I've always thought that was the biggest mistake I made, just not charging properly. And yeah, now I just look back on it and think, oh, you know, those jobs where we really struggled and we made zero money or they cost us money, but they helped us get that next job and that next job and that next job. You would do it all over again, you know, when you look back at it. Yeah, my younger self would absolutely kick me for that. Um, <laughs> and maybe, <laughs> maybe it's like that, yeah, it's glossing over the the pain it caused. But, yeah, it's funny how I'm looking back on that stage a little bit differently now. That's funny. And how does that, like, change what you do now? Like, does that make you go, like, oh, maybe obsessing over, like, holding the line on fees is maybe not the not the most important battle in the scheme of things or what? Like, is that kind of the takeaway you got from it or, cause you, you said earlier that, you know, you would, you wouldn't like do proposals that were like half baked. Like you would come on with a full concept process and stuff like that. And you would go like, you know, this is the way we do it. This is the proper way to do it. If you're not keen, like that's cool. We get it. But like this, we're not going to do a compromised kind of like shit design process. Like we're going to put forward the full thing. So on the one hand, yeah. like, Maybe, maybe is there a difference between like how you structured fees versus like just fees relatively, like it's hourly rates or, or whatever? Like, because on the one hand, they can, how can they be low while also being higher than anyone's expecting? And, you know, could you just explain that a little bit for me? Oh, look, I don't know if I could do it properly because we, like a lot of architects, we haven't been good at it. And it, <laughs> is, such, it is such a difficult thing to cost projects and, and do fees for architects. Um, I, I don't know how to do it properly. We're just, you're constantly trying to charge as essentially as much as you can. So you can put yeah. as much effort into it and trying to explain to a client, look, we need to put a lot of time into it to make it a really good project and that costs money. It's just always a really tricky thing to approach and discuss with clients. We're slowly getting better at it yep. and we're slowly getting experience about how much actually times it does, you, how much time you need to put into a project, but we are certainly not experts in the field. Yeah. Have you found over time that as the brand has gotten stronger and the reputation's kind of developed and gotten out there uh, and, and inquiries and clients are coming to you specifically because they've been drawn in by the work that you guys have done, has it given you a little bit more room to say like, okay, you know, as a percentage or whatever, or as a fixed fee, it, we are going to be higher and that maybe your clients are a little bit less sensitive on price, like if they're, if they're not really considering a lot of other alternatives or do you find that like they're always considering other alternatives and you are always still like there is some price competition pressure there for you guys? Yeah, look, I think people are always um, sensitive on price. It doesn't matter the size of the project they're on. Yeah. And sometimes the bigger the project, the more sensitive they are. It just comes back to we've got 
more confidence now about saying how much it should cost for our services yeah. because we've done it. We know how long it takes. We know how much hours you've got to put into it. Um, I guess in the past, yeah, we, we were always probably embarrassed to say, hey, this is how much time it's going to take us to do this project. But we know that. And it's, look, it's not for everyone. Um, there's a lot of different services, lots of different ways to get a procure a building. Um, but if people want to come to us for the kind of work we do, this is how much time it's going to take. So it's just a confidence thing. We still mm. lose the projects because of it and we're still unsure about how to charge for every job, but we're slowly getting our head around it. Yeah. No, I love it, man. And it's it's good because I think sometimes um, people feel like to be doing it properly, you need to have this stuff all completely perfectly worked out. But I find that there's some really good studios. That, well, I mean, most people, they're still figuring it out. It's an ongoing process. You never like master it right like pricing it's always changing you're always having to get better at it absolutely and look you'd probably in, until you get to a point where you can have like a studio manager and that kind of thing yeah. you're just juggling it between designing stuff and dealing with staff and clients and you know how much time do you actually get to do to perfect your fee proposal it's such yeah. an important thing but you've just got to balance it with everything else because if you've got an amazing fee proposal an amazing fee structure but you've got shitty work that's not going to get you anywhere. So you just got to have that that fine balance. Definitely. Um, you guys are kind of, uh, I know we probably can't talk much about any of this rebranding stuff that you guys are doing at the moment. We don't have to talk about it at all really, but I guess like are there any bits you can talk about in terms of the process of things that you guys are thinking about at the moment, maybe things that you've realized in the process or any big decisions you've made about like, all right, we reckon strategically we want to try and do a, B, C, because we think it'll have a good impact to like, what are you, what are you guys doing at the moment? Yeah, look, absolutely. As, as at the moment, as we're getting a bit more recognition and getting a bit bigger office and needing more jobs to kind of sustain that, yeah. we're probably a bit more aware of our marketing and how we're perceived from the outside. My wife has got a background in marketing and she has been pushing us to kind of improve our marketing so it matches the level of our architecture and just getting mm. parity on those fronts and how yep. we present ourselves. The brand really broadly, right? Broadly speaking, the brand and all the touch points and stuff like that. Absolutely. Where do you think the big area for improvement is at the moment? Like, Or it's maybe just small area, like small things across the board, right? Tweaks and adjustments. Or is it one big thing? Or what are you guys kind of thinking about? Uh, look, I think look, we don't have a social media manager or anything in our office where the architects are managing our Instagram feed, but we've got 30,000 people looking at everything we post and it's about getting a consistent message and a consistent kind of language and one that is consistent with the work we want to do. So it sounds really easy, but trying to manage that when, you know, you're just doing it at the end of the day amongst a million other things, you need to have a bit of a strategy. I don't think you can just do it on the fly. I mean, you can, and that's what we've been doing for the last 10 years, but <laughs> to achieve to achieve quality, you have to have good advice from people who are probably outside of our industry because we're architects. We're not social media people. We're not, unfortunately, businessmen. Um, so, yeah, getting some advice from people that are in the industry and they know what they're doing um, and have a broader sense of the kind of environment has been really valuable. And just having some sort of strategy and a document that we can refer to to help us kind of make decisions, that's been really helpful. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's really, really interesting. I mean, what do you what do you see as the biggest failure that firms like our kind of scale Oh, I, that's a that's a funny question. I mean, I don't see any like failure from a firm like yours, like at all. I mean, the thought does not even cross my mind of you guys of you guys failing because I'm kind of with you. I think like the work 
and how that's photographed is uh, and how that's shown and where that's shown is like 80% of the battle, right? I, I think mm. the rest of it is pretty simple and straightforward when you're positioning yourself as the type of brand that you are, uh, a design-focused brand that's focused on simplicity, like that sort of says that the rest of the stuff that you do around the edges don't don't have to be that complicated, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think you're making really a, set, a really sensible strategic move to start thinking about like, uh, looking at other areas like the sort of interior design market a little bit more. I suppose the risk is that you're in a very competitive space, right? Like you're mm. in Melbourne, you guys are doing awesome kind of form driven work. You've got sort of Rory Gardner aesthetic photography. You're, you, the, the problem is I think that there's actually quite a lot of competition from very, very similar looking practices yeah. that have a similar sort of aesthetic. And I think that's probably one of the big one of the big difficulties is actually standing out in that mix and yeah. it's a very, very competitive market and people are very uh, are marketing themselves very, very ag- aggressively in terms of how they invest in visuals and branding and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's just like, man, where do you find a gap in that market? <laughs> I think that's yeah. not a failure, but you asked for failure. I don't think that's a failure. I just see that as more of a, more of a challenge that I, I'm sure you guys are having a good think about at the moment or kind of contemplating and I don't know whether you need to. Maybe the market is big enough that just just even being at that t- ultra premium level of brand imagery and project recognition, maybe that is distinction enough in itself um, that you don't need to be the absolute top dog that's standing out from even the top 1% of practices. You know what I yeah. mean? I'm not sure. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people in Melbourne. There's a lot of projects going on Australia-wide. We're really fortunate compared to like somewhere in Europe where you are dealing with, you know, original built form and a lot of the work is kind of um, renovations or that kind of stuff and there's limited opportunities to do new work. Yeah. We're blessed with there's so much, such a big country and there's a lot of people coming here and there's a great kind of understanding of design. So there's a lot of people out there. So, yeah, it's a good, good spot to be in. What, what do you think that, um, you know, coming back to that question about, yeah, that that thing that you may be better or whatever, but maybe a few ways that you might set yourself apart from other studios relatively. I mean, this is a really tough area strategically to to think about anything that will be a meaningful difference to people, but it's an important area. In terms of what you've thought about so far, has anything stood out to you in terms of maybe like putting yourself in a potential client's shoes? Why kind of your studio might stand out to them? Do you reckon it does it come down to a project? Does it come down to maybe more of a personality factor? Is it like a messaging thing? Like do you guys maybe message slightly differently and that's saying that maybe they respond to? Uh, look, I'm really not sure and it's so hard to assume what someone else goes through with another architect Yeah, and to presume you know everything in that setup. I guess what we're really proud of and maybe we're told that isn't typical is we work really well with our builders and we're often got really good relationships with them. And I tell my clients, look, our job is to make best friends with the builder because that's going to get you the best product. We don't look down on them. We, we ask for their opinion and, and we get a really strong feedback, particularly from the builders about that. Um, and we feel like we've got really good results because of that. I mean, there's so much work that goes into a house and you can't just have a great design. You've got to be able to navigate all different types of trades who have never worked together before. And so being able to do that with humility and compassion it's so important because if you have a builder that goes under or hates you, they're not going to do a good job and you're not going to get a good finish. So I 
think that's something we take a huge amount of pride in. And I always say to my staff as like their first new staff that you just need to respect the builder. You need to make best friends with them because they're going to teach you so much. That's a real key thing. And look, just the attention to detail we take and a lot of other architects do this, but we put yep. so much time and effort into all our work, all our details. And I think we get a lot of positive feedback from that. And hopefully you can see it once you do visit a site and don't just see it in the photographs. So you can see that the attention to detail goes through the whole project. So yeah, we take a lot of pride in that. No, that's cool. I think those are some good things to sort of to think about and to include into it. I guess looking ahead to the future, Dom, like probably a question to sort of finish on long-term sort of vision for the practice or, or trajectory. I mean, maybe it's doesn't have to be like anything kind of crystal clear at this stage, but just somewhere you'd like to go over time, maybe just in a few years' time, 10 years' time, anything like that, like in terms of maybe what sort of size of practice you guys might be, what you might be working on, anything unexpected about plans you've got for the studio in time? Yeah, look, it's a really exciting time for us. We're starting to get approached to do some bigger scale projects. So we're working on a couple of boutique apartment buildings at the moment, and that's been fantastic from a learning curve and just to test our kind of approach for a residential project on a larger scale. And you get exposed to different trades and different consultants and seeing your work on a larger scale, you know, it's always really exciting. So look, we have no firm decision on where we want to be or what we want to do. I guess we want to just keep doing work that is inspiring for other people, but it's inspiring for us as well. So you never want to stay still and just do the same thing every day. And so, yeah, different typologies and different scales of work is really exciting to us. And yeah, in terms of scale, we just, we'll just keep slowly growing or shrinking if that if that has to be the way just so we can have a nice level of um have a fun environment to be in um we, we've got a great team that we all really enjoy coming to work every day or i think we do and you know i think having the right amount of people is really important to that you don't want to be too stretched and you obviously got to pay the bills so just getting that nice balance is really important yeah i love it and that kind of creates like a bit more of a sustainable lifestyle for yourself as a business owner right like trying to trying to manage that not getting too hectic that you end up feeling like oh man i can't wait to i'm going to try and sell this thing and get, get out of this yeah get out. like it's a long-term it's a long-term game right yeah totally and 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 people have other things in their lives like um we're pretty good in our office we kind of work the nine to five and aren't there crazy hours we work really hard but um you know people have got other stuff on and if you yep. just got your head in architecture you're not going to be producing good stuff you need to be inspired from everywhere else so yeah getting a really good balance is important man so true i love it when people bring that up on the podcast as a little reminder because it because it is very very true Dom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, mate. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope it was all good talking about marketing stuff for over an hour. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think there was a lot of useful things that came up and, and, and some lessons for other studios as well. So I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Dominic Pandolfini from Pandolfini Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Pandolfini Architects, you can visit pandolfini.com.au. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at pandolfini underscore architects. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.